I'd like to talk to everyone about something I am calling pre-post-COVID. We just give a little bit of context to where we're going, and then I've got a couple of guests joining me today, and we'll get into some questions and answers on this this uh, situation that I'm referring to as pre-post-COVID. So we think back to 2019, midway through 2019, we started to see demand for digital services begin to slow. And as a Source Global Research uh, report I just read this morning, it talked about digital transformations and starting to run out of steam because, and I quote this from the article, digital transformation projects were starting to look like big IT projects. We also were hearing back in 2019, if, if most will remember, we were being told that the global economy was starting to cool off. Then by February 2020, COVID hit, and we began to close cities and countries across EMEA, and the U.S. started to shut down, if I recall, sometime around early to mid-March. Unemployment in the U.S. prior to COVID was under 4%, and then come April 2015, we saw unemployment run to 15%. People around the world found themselves without jobs, and many small to medium-sized businesses either closed their doors for good or they sold themselves to larger companies at what we might call fire sale prices. Now, if we fast forward to April of this year, 2021, we still have a COVID threat out there, right? There's massive physical global threat yet. Uh, unemployment starting to come back down again now. It was 6% last I checked, and it's continuing to drop. We've entered a period of unprecedented demand. Uh, we're seeing this in at EPAM. And as for what uh, the same article refers to as more radical solution, solutions delivered more quickly. And it's not just affecting EPAM, right? We, we're looking at other firms like ours. We're looking at their recent earnings reports of our competitors, and they're seeing the same sort of demand that we're seeing. So all of this now is adding up to a scarcity of talent, uh, fewer places to source the talent, and the cost of talent, particularly good talent and relevant talent for the kind of talent we look for is in sharp decline. With me today, I've got two of EPAM's leaders who are closely monitoring these conditions and how they're impacting our business, both Larry Solomon, EPAM CPO, and Jason Peterson, our CFO. My first question is going to go to Larry. Larry, uh, thinking about the post, I'm sorry, pre-post-COVID, you think I'd get my own thing correct here, the pre-post-COVID conditions impacting our ability to find and hire talent, what are we doing to ensure we're able to meet client demands? Thanks, Albert, and delighted to be here uh, with all of you today. Um, you know, it's an interesting question. And first of all, I'd like to say that I hope we are now in a post-COVID uh, environment. But to your point, to your question, we are seeing very robust uh, demand as the appetite for digital transformations and rapid shifts to the cloud are accelerating for many of our clients and you know, many companies in general. Um, to the question, uh, we are uh, ramping up our hiring capacity uh, in a major way. Uh, every, every month we are adding capacity to our recruiting engine to find more talent. We're also expanding uh, from a geographic perspective uh, where and how we are hiring talent. Uh, we've done some other things to ensure that we're able to meet client demands uh, such as uh, moving people as we can, given the immigration and the COVID restrictions, uh, to places where uh, they are able to service our customers more effectively. And we've also leaned heavily on our employee base uh, through what is our most effective and efficient channel, the employee referral channel, uh, to 
use their networks to leverage their relationships uh, to hire more people uh, for for the company. So it's a it's an aggressive environment out there. I would say that the engineers that we are targeting are perhaps the most over recruited people in the marketplace right now. Uh, we are not the only one in the situation that we're in, but I'm also delighted to say that uh, we're getting at least our fair share, and in many cases, more than our fair share uh, to to meet our clients' demands. Yeah, thanks, Larry. You know, and that, that tightening of supply, and, and as you mentioned, everybody recruiting, it's certainly pushing wages up. So, Jason, what measures are being put in place within EPAM to keep our labor costs from impacting earnings? Yeah, th- thanks. And, and you're right. It's, it's uh, almost unprecedented in terms of demand, and that is putting pressure on, on labor prices and, and plus some of the other dislocations around people not living in the same places and, and now being willing to sort of recruit more broadly geographically, um, you know, has also put pressure on, on wages and let's call them secondary markets. And so, you know, what we've been doing is, is, is clearly focused on making certain that we, we can retain our staff because part of what Larry talked about in terms of trying to attract staff, you know, part of how you sort of solve for, for, resourcing is to make certain that you can kind of retain your staff. So that does mean we need need to, to make certain that we're mindful of wage pressures in markets. At the same time, you know, an employee-employer relationship is more than just your regular paycheck. And so it's make you know, so we spent a lot of time thinking about how do we create a real career journey for our employees that um, that, that help them develop, grow, learn, you know, expand in terms of their potential. And we find that that relationship oftentimes tends to be somewhat sticky. Uh, but I would say that, you know, we're having to, you know, increasingly have that, that challenging conversation with our clients, which is that if we're going to be able to continue to sort of give them high-performing teams, um, they are going to have to work with us in terms of rates. So, Albert, there is more discussion around rates um, and probably somewhat more of those types of discussions coming. At the same time, for those who are in the services industry, you know, you, we, we realize that there's different things you can do with Pyramid and other things. And then I think, you know, what you're going to see in the mid to maybe even longer term is we're going to have to continue to be as efficient as possible in terms of our SGNA or corporate function spending. Uh, one of the things I think you and I've talked about is is actually real estate and what happens in the post-pandemic world, world with real estate and whether or not we all get more efficient and use our real estate somewhat differently. And I think that's another opportunity for us to, to sort of shave some costs. Maybe we wouldn't always get the rate increases we need from clients to help us offset labor and, and inflation. But um, if we can get more efficient in, in our use of real estate, then maybe that kind of keeps us whole and allows us to meet the needs of our clients. Yeah, thanks, Jason. I'd like to take a half a second to drill into rates just a just a little bit. So I always think about it as a you know who's going to blink first. Are we are we watching our competitors and our competitors signaling the same sort of thinking? I mean, there's a lot of language out there um, around you know around the time of press releases where people are talking about wage inflation or maybe unprecedented wage inflation, or about um, having to go back and give employees a second raise you know, in a, in a fiscal year when usually it would only give one raise. And I have to assume that that type of language is also being used in discussions with their own clients. And so I think, you know, in a world and no one wants to gouge, uh, you know, clients, but, you know, in a world where there is insufficient supply, 
um, and, and, and you have wage inflation, you know, there probably is an opportunity to have a discussion to make certain that both parties can kind of, kind of meet their, uh, their needs. And hopefully those needs are, you know, somewhat mutually consistent, which is to make certain that we can maintain high performing teams to solve our, our clients demanding technical challenges. Yeah. That's great. Hey, Larry, I think you, you got to a little bit of this in your, in your last comment, but I, I want to dig in just a little bit deeper. So, you know, thinking about um, the shift in the sources of talent. So we, we think about COVID and the impact COVID's had on small to medium-sized businesses. Are we seeing a shift in the source of talent for EPAM today? Uh, interesting question, Albert. I, as I think about this, I wouldn't say that we're seeing any material shift in our sources of talent. I would say that we're seeing a general expansion uh, in our sources of talent, meaning, you know, we are looking to, we are actively expanding from a geographic perspective and are looking to hire people from a broader set of, of countries and locations around the world. And uh, our anywhere capability uh, allows us to, you know, broaden our horizons in terms of where we're able to secure uh, top-notch technical talent. The other thing that we've seen is, you know, as EPAM continues to, to grow and to become a more noticeable uh, company, uh, given, you know, the attractiveness of, of what we offer, uh, we are seeing a, a higher uh, volume of, of recruits that are proactively reaching out to us from many of our competitors uh, and in particular at the senior levels, uh, which is also, you know, increasing our what we call onshore uh, mix of, of uh, people because that's where many of the more senior people are, are uh, hired. You know, I think the other thing that I would point out is um, we have learned that talent can come from multiple places and it's not just the large technology companies uh, and competitors that we're able to, to bring on talent. We have a very effective uh, way to measure technical capacity and technical competence, which is not the be-all, end-all, but it's important in a company like, like ours. And we are able to uh, look at many more candidates that I would say have somewhat of an atypical profile in their background where they've worked for smaller or medium-sized companies or perhaps we're doing things on their own in a very entrepreneurial fashion, which can also be very attractive to us. Yeah, thank you. We, we like to talk about doing to ourselves before we introduce ideas and concepts to our clients. Um, Jason, we, we've talked about data in the past and how EPAM uses data, you know, and, and given there's not been a lot of historical versions of this to go back and say, well, here's how we did it before. Here's how other organizations did it in the past. But then again, how organizations react to real-time data has changed dramatically over the years. So we think about data and how EPAM uses data. How are we using it to govern in conditions like this that we're seeing today? Yeah, I would say, you know, that's one of the areas where, you know, maybe we are truly kind of world-class. There's probably a number of areas where we're uh, where we're, we're truly world-class. But when it comes to, let's say, how we organize our company, how we organize the data associated with running our company, and then the ability to sort of spin up sort of quick dashboards that enable us to make decisions. It, you know, it, I've been with the company for four years and I've just 
gotten used to it, but I just realized that in, in my past life, if you had a crisis like the one we just went through, your ability to have real-time data, I just never had it the way, way we have it here at EPAM. And so, you know, for those of us who sit internally, you know that we have a daily uh, update to our customer pipeline. So you can really see how demand is building and that's updated, um, you know, nearly real time on, on a daily basis. In addition, we have a significant amount of data associated with, with employees, uh, where they're based, their skill sets, um, uh, what we're doing to add additional employees, in which geographies, which levels, which skills. And, you know, particularly during the, um, the, the, the initial part of the crisis, which you talked about, that kind of March, April, May timeframe, where demand was really changing quite radically and sometimes declining. Um, the ability to actually sort of be able to say, here's what we've got from a supply standpoint. Here's how demand's changed. This client is is actually ramping up. This client is actually ramping down. And being able to shift resources between those clients was, you know, extremely helpful to us from, I would say, both a supportive clients, but also from a profitability standpoint. And then the thing that we've had throughout the crisis um, uh, is the ability to sort of see how productive our employees are. So one of the things we've heard is I think, you know, both you and Larry know is that, you know, our clients have told us that we really responded, you know, very, very successfully to, to the crisis. We were able to shift to work from home. We could monitor our employees, their progress in shifting from work, work from home, their levels of productivity. We could see it at an aggregate level. We could see it at a, at an account level. We could see it at a granular sort of individual level. And so what we were able to do is actually, you know, take modern, you know, data technologies, and then use kind of old-fashioned kind of meetings, but in this case, kind of old-fashioned meets new-fashioned where, you know, we're all on Microsoft Teams. And to take that data and then work as a team to sort of quickly interpret the data and then make decisions. And so we were way more nimble than we were previously. And I think you'll continue to see us more, more nimble in this sort of post-COVID world. Yeah, we, we learn a lot through this that can certainly be applied going forward. Larry, just switching gears just a little bit, thinking about acquisitions and a couple couple areas I'd like to drill into on the acquisition strategies and all. But if we if we look at our our acquisition history, we're not we're not a heavy acquisition company, uh, and the acquisitions we've added typically have faced on capabilities. What new capabilities can we inject into EPAM as a result of an acquisition? But given what's going on with talent. And an availability of talent. Are we looking for acquisitions to add to capacity at this point? You know, I, I think you're right. Typically, we have looked at acquisitions uh, with a capability lens, and you know, we do acquisitions for a variety of uh, reasons. Uh, I think, generally speaking, uh, we will continue to look for acquisitions to add capability. Uh, making an acquisition solely based on capacity is usually not a very attractive uh, proposition for us, particularly in the in the long run. Uh, I wouldn't say we would rule it out on a smaller scale, but the capacity has to come with some capability uh, as well. You know, hiring just just heads uh, to to increase the number of people uh, usually is not the right the right structure for us and. I think capability will still be the primary reason why we look to to acquire, uh, you know, companies. Um, and on a smaller scale, perhaps in a geography where where we don't have critical mass yet, uh, if we can 
if we can hire some, if we can acquire some additional capacity while still raising the overall bar of what we're able to offer to our clients. Because at the end of the day, uh, our clients hire us because of the capability and the experience and the competence and the expertise that our people have. Uh, you know, any company can can acquire to get capacity, but that's not the game that we want to be in for the long run. Yeah. So I think your point is, you know, if capacity becomes an issue, don't look to acquisitions to solve that. We will find we will find ways to, to resolve that through other through other means is your point. Yeah, I think I think generally speaking, like I said, it, it, we're not going to rule anything out uh, at this point where, you know, we're a hungry company, we're a flexible company. Uh, we have a pretty wide lens in terms of uh, what we're looking for and what, um, uh, you know, various people and companies approach us with. But generally speaking, uh, you know, the game is about uh, capability and profitable growth, not just growth at any cost. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking on, on acquisitions, Jason, thinking about, you know, our traditional and historical acquisition strategy, and we think about, you know, what happened in COVID with a number of businesses, you know, that have either gone out of business or, or we've seen, in my, in my opening statements there, I talked about fire sale prices um, from an acquisition perspective. What's left for sale and, and is it impacting our overall acquisition strategy? Yeah, I mean, there's a fair bit left for sale. Um, you know, I would say on, let's say, the larger, let's say, you know, relatively large scale assets, you know, some of those companies have been purchased or um, they're actively preparing to, to go public because of the, the market valuations. And so these kind of, you know, super scale kind of opportunities may not be as present, but, but there's, a you know, underneath that layer, there's a, a significant number of, of assets that, that are available and, and potentially for sale. Um, and the super, super sale assets weren't necessarily our target for the, for the most part anyways. And so I would say, yes, there's quite a few assets that are out there. As Larry said, they, you know, give us either opportunities with, um, you know, capabilities or, or customer fake facing in certain end markets that we're in, interested in. In some cases, there could be an asset that acts as an accelerator in a geography that we're not currently located in that we might use to sort of accelerate uh, talent expansion. Um, but, uh, you know, I would think the one thing I would say is I think we all kind of looked for potentially an opportunity in Q2 of 2020 for potentially, um, you know, valuations to change, right? For things to, you know, companies to, re to realize that, um, that, you know, the market was challenging, that, that maybe there were some opportunities, as you said, at a fire sale price. And what instead happened is, of course, demand for the types of services that, um, that, that we, we deliver and for the types of companies that we'd likely acquire uh, have accelerated. And for the most part, what you're seeing is kind of higher valuations. And so I think that there's opportunity to, 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 to make you know, very good strategic acquisitions. But I think as valuations have elevated, you need to be increasingly kind of careful to make certain that you're really getting an asset that, um, that you think is going to be appropriate uh, for, for your strategy and for your company's culture. And so for those who've you know, been part of the EPAM process, a lot of that really does have, you know, getting to understand the, the leadership team of the, of the asset and also even, even um, you know, rank and file to the extent that that type of insights are available to understand whether or not that it'll be a good combination and whether or not the, the assets uh, 
team is excited about what a future in combination with UCAM could look like. And I think oftentimes that's what we do sort of um, present to a, uh, to a to an acquisition target as an opportunity to be part of a very different future in combination with EPAM. Um, but as I said, right now, I think that the assets are out there, but just the valuations are, are somewhat elevated at this point. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's uh, I was going to pursue that path just a little bit with you. Any, anybody who did survive, you know, is probably facing the similar similar types of demand that we're seeing right now. So you know, everybody might think their company is worth exponentially more than we might value. Does that does that put us on hold for a period of time until things restabilize, or we we just need to be more cautious? Yeah, I think that it's probably the latter to be more cautious. I think you know, even a couple of years ago, we began to see uh, valuations raise. And, you know, I think we hoped or thought possibly valuations could kind of reset a little bit, and we haven't seen that. And so clearly we want to be cautious. We don't want to overpay for an asset that, that ultimately ends up inappropriate. Um, but, you know, this is a little bit of a seller's market right now. And to the extent that you, you want to be, um, uh, you know, making strategic acquisitions that allow the company to continue to evolve its capabilities in a way that allow the company to continue to grow at a rate of, you know, greater than 20% over a period of many future years. Um, you know, we, we will have to occasionally sort of pay valuations that we weren't used to several years ago. And, but at the same time, you know, if you look at our valuation, our multiples are, are extremely high relative to where, where they were two or three years ago. So generally, the, you know, the opportunities are still very, very creative. You know, when we, when we went into the crisis, I think we were all facing a period of, you know, exceptional uh, uncertainty, right? So we, we looked around and, and really didn't know what to predict and when it was going to happen, how long it was going to last, um, and what exactly the impact would be on the business. You could, you could argue it's, it's not a whole lot different now. It's just going in the other direction. Um, I know neither one of you have a crystal ball, but Larry, what's your thoughts? How long is this going to last? And, and what, what would we anticipate as indications that we're starting to come out of this, this pre-COVID, um, pre-post-COVID race towards stabilization? You know, I think the, there's two different questions there. I'll try to hit them both briefly and then Jason can uh, as well. I think this new norm will carry with it a continued level of unpredictability or uncertainty uh, and to some degree, you know, unknown about what the future has in store because two years ago, nobody would have ever even thought or very few geniuses would have thought that, you know, this type of situation would, would impact the entire world and change many of the things that we do um, probably forever. Uh, so I think, you know, that's going to be the new norm. And I think the companies that are able to pivot and, uh, you know, and, and operate with speed and flexibility and agility, which maybe are overused terms, but those are the companies that are going to be the winners out there because some of the changes will, will hit us before we even know that we've been, we've been hit. Uh, and as Jason mentioned in a prior question, you know, one example of that was our ability to, within a week, uh, you know, get 97 or 98% of our workforce working productively and safely from a home, a home environment. Um, in terms of the other question, you know, when do I think we'll start to see us come out of this? Um, I certainly think, you know, once we reach that level of 
what's being called this herd immunity with 70% of the population having, uh, having been uh, vaccinated. I think we will start to see at that point things opening up even more so than they are today. We haven't reached that point. I know in the U.S., uh, we over the weekend, we crossed uh, the 50% uh, mark where at least 50% of the population has had at least their initial uh, vaccination. And I think as soon as people get more comfortable with commuting and you know going to events and coming back to the office and just being around, people, which I anticipate will probably be somewhere, you know, in Q3 around there. And some people might decide just to wait it out until the end of the summer. So I think sometime around Q3, uh, we'll start to see a broader, you know, movement of people back to offices, back to the new normal, you know, participating in events, participating in meetings, physical meetings, you know, getting back on airplanes. Um, But I think there's also going to be a level of conservatism conservatism going forward. Um, And I think as an example, you know, we're going to see continued distancing for quite some time and, you know, using masks and just proper hygiene and, you know, sanitizing hands and everything, which I think frankly is good behavior overall with or without a pandemic. Thank you. Hey, Jason, same same question to you, but thinking more from a demand perspective Mm -hmm. and impact to the business. Yeah, no, absolutely. Is that, you know, so I think as Larry said, um, you know, use the word of, you know, unpredictability or, or and I think that the only thing you could really predict is that the world is going to be increasingly unpredictable. And I think you're seeing um, with a number of clients in industries that didn't necessarily digitize in the past is that they're realizing that they need to be more, more nimble, more responsive, the type of thing that we talked about earlier. So they need to be able to respond to a business condition that they can't necessarily predict. And so a lot of that does have, you know, it does does focus them on how do I modernize my technology in a way that it, that it is more flexible, that is more platform-like. And so I think, you know, I want to say that maybe last quarter when I was meeting with investors, there seemed to be a bit of a thesis that, you know, maybe what had happened is two quarters of demand had pulled forward. And that's why, you know, things looked as, as robust as they did. Um, and I really think, you know, everyone obviously, you know, you know, is entitled to an opinion and mine can certainly be wrong. But my belief is what we're seeing is a is a, a trend here in 2021 that is going to continue at least into 2022. I, I think that there's an awful lot of companies that have kind of woken up and realized that they need to make some additional investments, clearly retail consumer goods. Um, all the data analytics we talked about earlier is that there's a high focus on kind of understanding customer and customer purchase behavior. But you're also beginning to see industries in manufacturing. I think you're beginning to see people think about, you know, what, what a changing planet does to their business. So I think that drives demand. And then I think the one thing that, that you know, is interesting about a platform business is that, you know, once you have one, you are, you know, you continue to spend as you, as you create new products and services and different ways of connecting with clients. And so um, there's, a, I think, a lot of activity that's going to go on uh, that, that, you know, our firm and other firms like ours could benefit from in the next couple of years. But then I think that's going to create kind of further demand in years after that as people take their initial investments and then, then expand upon those or move to sort of gen next. And so uh, I think the demand environment, um, you know, looks looks robust, not just this year, but but certainly into 2022 and, and uh, you know, I suspect likely beyond. 
Well, yeah, and I think on top of that, travel and hospitality still hasn't even gotten the wake-up call yet. And then, of course, all the all the spinoff uh, demand that it would generate. Uh, so I, I agree. I think it's it's going to run quite a bit longer than two quarters anyway. Well, gentlemen, listen, that's, that's all I had. I, I really appreciate your insight uh, and perspective on these particular topics. Thank you very much. And thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Albert. Pleasure to chat. This has been Silo Busting, a podcast from EPAM Continuum. EPAM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. Why do we do this? Because real opportunities aren't siloed. 